Welcome everybody, my name is Mikhail Nasrani and this is Islam for Christians, episode 36, Hadith, Prohibiting Religious Innovation. This month's Hadith is from the Abu Dawood collection on the authority of Abu Nai al-Irbad ibn Saria. The Messenger of Allah gave us a sermon by which our hearts were filled with fear and tears came to our eyes. So he said, O Messenger of Allah, it is as though this is a farewell sermon, so counsel us. He said, I counsel you to have tagwa, fear, of Allah, and to listen and obey your leader, even if a slave were to become your emir, which is a leader. Verily, he among you who lives long will see great controversy. So you must keep to my sunnah and to the sunnah of the kulafa are Rashidin, the rightly guided caliphs, those who guide the right way. Cling to it stubbornly, literally, with your molar teeth. So cling to it stubbornly. Beware of newly invented matters in the religion. For verily, every bidda, which is an innovation, every innovation is misguidance. One of the great mysteries of Islamic history is why Muhammad never named a successor. How is it that an ancient man in his 60s had not planned for the stability of the political empire that he had built? The different sects have their reasoning for why the succession should have gone one way or the other. But if Sunnis and Shias are talking in good faith, both would have to admit that neither side has a manifestly obvious 100% slam dunk case on this. Um, you know who would have that? A person with a will, written by lawyers, and notarized, and properly filed. Or in the context of an oral society like ancient Mecca, it would be an effort to make sure that everyone knew, without question, who would be first in the line of succession. But Muhammad had nothing resembling this, and not just because modern contract law didn't exist, and it's doubling Doubly perplexing because he clearly, far ahead of time, saw the craziness coming, as you see in the Hadith that I just read. So, I think the most logical reason might be it was intentional. Perhaps it was intentional to leave this ambiguity here regarding the succession. Maybe naming a successor would have given the next Muslim leader too much authority, too much legitimacy. So much so that he could claim to be a prophet. You know, who knows? You know, that's just speculation. Perhaps the strife that followed was actually by design. It certainly made for generations of drama and intrigue. But at the same time, you may have noticed that Muhammad took greater care to be explicit about the future of his religion and assign that religion greater importance than for lack of a better word, the kingdom or the caliphate or the political empire of Islam. He's basically saying that rulers will come and go. Some will be good, some will be bad. That's just the way of the world. And that's certainly how it turned out. After the fourth caliph died, which was Ali, um, after that, a slimy, opportunistic, secular politician got his entitled little hands on the Islamic throne. 
Muhammad doesn't rail against potentially impure political leadership here. He's almost resigned to it. You know, that's not a really a religious stand, though, or at least I don't think it is. It's just basic, normal wisdom. When you have rulers, many of them will be idiots. That's just how it goes with people. There has never been any country in the history of the world that has not, at some point, been ruled by a complete and total blockhead. Muhammad knew this and adjusted his expectations to this reality. It's the same attitude as America's founding fathers, actually. People cannot be trusted, so the powerful must be neutered in advance. And just as the threshold to amend the United States Constitution is exceptionally high, three-quarters of the states, I believe, Muhammad set a similarly high standard for amending his religion. Although, in his case, the standard was not just high, it's insurmountable. His message was clear here. Do not change my religion. You can ruin this kingdom, split it into a million pieces, and rule it like a blind monkey with a sword in his hand, but the religion itself is off limits. Cling to my sunnah, he says. Cling to my sunnah with your teeth. Beware of innovations and newly invented matters that I never taught. These will always be in error. And I don't think it's crazy to see this religion, what Muhammad considered to be God's religion, to be infinitely more important than whoever is in charge. You actually see echoes of Luther's two kingdoms here. Or rather, chronologically speaking, you could argue Luther was, echo was echoing Muhammad when he talked about the two kingdoms. Really, you could probably do much of Luther's two kingdoms only with Islamic material. But also, like someone like John Calvin, Muhammad thought nothing of mixing the temporal and the spiritual worlds. There was a desire to build God's kingdom right here to the extent it was possible. And theology would play a role in government for both of them. Heck, Muhammad had God dictating military policy. How more involved can you be? But while Luther had his two kingdoms, you could probably think of the Muslims as having kingdom 1A and kingdom 1B. Not quite two separate kingdoms. You know, what with a prophet who is king, prophet, and general. But one was clearly better than the other. That being the spiritual kingdom, of course. That was the superior one. But with Muhammad's death, this synthesis just wasn't possible anymore. You, could, you, you couldn't combine those things anymore. And this hadith reflects Muhammad's knowledge that this would happen. And in Muhammad's two kingdoms, I don't think innovation in government would bother him. But innovation in his religion? Oh, no. No, 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 no. If a caliph wants to create a new tax or invent a new bureaucracy, that's one thing. But you do not ever get to change a single letter of God's holy Quran and the Sunnah, or the path that came out of it. I should explain here that in Islam, the, the Sunnah is basically the righteous path or set of practices. It's the root word of the term Sunni those who follow the Sunnah. 
This is mainly derived from the Quran and the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. But Islamic law also takes into account other factors, including something called ijtihad, which is basically religion, and ijma, which is the consensus of the community, particularly the early community or the current community of Muslim legal scholars. So these people are interpreting the Sunnah, but that's all they're doing. They're just interpreting it. What they are not allowed to do is make things up as they go along. From the beginning, Muhammad was setting the Sunnah in stone. I just realized a quick correction here. I called ijtihad religion. That is the wrong R word. Uh, ijtihad is reason. Uh, this would be a very, very big thing in the medieval era in the Islamic golden age. But ijtihad is reason, not religion. There is another rough Christian parallel here, actually. Think about papal infallibility. If you're not a Catholic, you may not understand this concept. So real quick here, papal infallibility does not mean that the Pope is perfect. It doesn't mean that he is without sin. It doesn't even mean that he is never wrong. It's a very specific thing when the Pope is speaking explicitly on a matter of faith in a formal, official capacity. For example, I believe this is why women will never, ever be priests. Pope John Paul made this clear, officially, and the matter is settled. Forever. Now, this system can be a good thing, or it can be a bad thing. Yes, some people dislike the rigid dogmatism that this creates, but at the same time, isn't religion supposed to have absolute truth claims? Relying on the gospel and holy tradition, as the Catholics do, gives a religion more consistency over far greater time periods. Many Protestant denominations have been experiencing theological whiplash over the rapid change of society and their various responses to it, because the gospel alone is far more malleable than the gospel combined with holy tradition. Now, in this way, the Protestant churches are like speedboats and yachts, while the Catholics are driving giant oil tankers. But eventually, all these boats can steer, and the reason is innovation. Protestants have things like the Living Bible. You can steer that thing in just about any direction. And the lower the ecclesiastical tradition, meaning the less it is based on traditional clergy, hierarchy, tradition, you know, and all that, the greater the degree of pace and innovation. Sorry, the greater the pace of innovation and the degree of innovation. And you could definitely argue that the Catholic tradition in itself is a religious innovation in itself. After all, I don't think Peter, the first pope by tradition, either spoke Latin or in infallibility. He would have not, he wouldn't have known what that was. You know, uh, I don't think he even used the word pope. But the religious toolkit grew over time. It always does. But Islam isn't like that. It's more of a train than a boat. And you can't steer a train. So, back to Muhammad. Yeah, the religion is set in stone. But what does that really mean? As the distance between Muhammad's ministry and modern Muslims continues to grow, the gap grows in time 
in technology and in society. And this gets way harder. For example, there is no way Muhammad could ever imagine that Muslims would be living above the Arctic Circle. I'm sure he had no idea what that even was, or how short the day was all the way up there. Can you imagine being a Muslim in Alaska? In December, you'd have about two minutes to say all five daily prayers. And if Ramadan falls in June, well, you're going to have to either move or starve to death. Now, is it wrong for polar Muslims to create a few exceptions? Doesn't that call for innovation? Now, admittedly, that's just a fun and somewhat ridiculous example. But here's a more tempting innovation for Muslims. Modern finance. Muslims are not allowed to charge interest. It was considered usury in Muhammad's time. But it's not only necessary to the modern economy, but it's been shown pretty convincingly to be an economic engine that benefits all people, not just the lender. Now, say you're an influential Muslim cleric. How tempting is this? Is it time for an innovation? Here's another hypothetical. Pretty soon, lab-grown meat could be plentiful, nutritious, and cheap. Is that halal? Uh, halal is the Islamic version of kosher. Now, this meat was not properly slaughtered, but does it matter if the animal never existed in the first place? It's forbidden to eat animals who were found dead. Does this count as dead meat? Because really, the animal was never alive, because there was no animal. Or, given the benefit of this, particularly to the poor, should there be an entirely new category of food? Dare I say, an innovation? And there's no easy answers to these questions. Remember, the Sharia is set in stone. But which part is set in stone? The spirit of that rule to prevent usury or the actual rule itself? Is the spirit of Islamic finances aversion to usury or the specific rule on interest? You know, which one that counts? Is it one, the other, or both? Which part of the Sharia regarding food is set in stone? The entirety of the rule itself, letter for letter, or the spirit of the rule? Is it innovation to update the Sharia to the modern situation? Or is that simply impossible? Can you parse out which aspects are holy and which are just random secular social norms of 7th century Arabia? Or is that just sociological mush-speak that lets people ultimately do whatever the heck they want? I think most imams, and maybe even most Muslims, would say obey the rules letter for letter as they were originally given because of the dangers inherent in giving too much leeway. In that, they could point to the great innovators of Christianity as either an example or a warning, or both. Paul would probably be the greatest of these innovators. Because of Paul, parts of the Old Testament law were stricken to minister to the Greeks. This is why Christians eat pork. This is why Constantine felt comfortable moving the Sabbath to Sunday. Christian men are not required to be circumcised either. And that last one was probably very, very helpful in spreading Christianity to adult men. 
But these types of things are extremely unlikely to happen in Islam, at least within the mainstream. See my heretics episodes for those who disagree. But it's hard to ever see a time where a credible imam holds the main service on any day other than Friday and says it's okay to eat pork and tells Muslim men that the whole genital cutting thing is no longer necessary. It's just not in the Islamic character and it runs counter to so much of the modern world. Case in point. In my country, the innovators of Silicon Valley have a motto, move fast and break things. And they certainly do that. And it's the reason so much earth-shattering technology has developed in that place and in that culture. But it's also a place where an evangelist is a software salesman. They actually use that name. A place where church membership is seen as antisocial and where people seek eternal life, not through prayer, but through man-made technology. They worship many things there, but God is not one of them. It's almost the inverse of a traditional community, particularly a religious community, where the motto is more like move slowly and never ever break anything. And among religions, Islam is probably the most cautious, the most conservative, the least comfortable in an environment like Silicon Valley. And a major reason is this hadith and Muhammad's warning against innovation. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.